for joining me, Pete Holtzman, for the Credentials Only Podcast, where you are introduced to people who work in sports. Today's guest is Nick McCarville, the U.S. News Producer for the Olympic Channel. A veteran of several games, Nick started in his current role in the summer of 2020. As with so many who have worked the Olympics, Nick is captivated by the atmosphere at those events. The energy is incredible. Uh, I love the national feel of people walking around and you've got people with flags all over them and hats and gear. And it's a festival that, you know, we might see in music or food and it's for sport. Over his career, Nick has spent the majority of his time covering tennis and figure skating. While the conditions of those two sports are vastly different, Nick is drawn to them because of their similarities. I think when I look at the two sports, what I so appreciate about the athletes that are in them, the elite athletes in particular, is that, you know, you're out there all on your own. It is a stage, obviously two quite different stages, but it is a stage unlike any other. Nick not only talks about the work he has done, but also how he got those jobs, including sharing how he worked as a wedding waiter on weekends while trying to piece together enough freelance work. I realized that, okay, if I can, if I can keep this bounce going, then perhaps this is a, a chance for me really to, to have a, a, a career out of freelancing. And, and I wanted to be in sports. At heart, Nick is a storyteller. And in telling his own story, he describes what he hopes to share with his audience invite them in with being myself and telling them that they could come along for the ride as we talk to Roger or Rafa or whoever we're speaking with, and then hopefully revealing something that they haven't necessarily seen or felt from those athletes before. Before we get started, please take a moment to give us a rating and review wherever you're listening. As always, don't forget to visit credentialsonly.com for show notes about this episode and to join our email list. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Nick McCarvel of the Olympic Chain. Nick, thanks so much for joining me. It's pretty clear, checking out your social media feeds, that your primary sports are figure skating and tennis. <laughs> There's some pretty obvious differences. I mean, there's the whole like hot and cold thing among others, but I suspect there's some commonalities that really draw you to those two sports. What is it about those sports that attracts you? Yeah, well, first of all, Pete, thanks for having me. Obviously, I, I've listened to a handful of episodes and I love what you're, what you're doing with the podcast. I'm honored to be here. And um, I'm really thankful, obviously, for your friendship over the years too. So. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's funny when you put it that way. Um, I, I can't have the same wardrobe for the two sports. That's for sure. Um, no, you know, I, I, you know, tennis has always been my first love. Uh, I think maybe you and I are similar in that sense. It's my baby. I, I played it growing up. It was the sport I watched all the time on TV. Um, uh, you know, I, I have loved it with every part of my being for so long. And, um, the, the way that I got drawn into figure skating is twofold. I sort of, by function, I was working for NBC on their digital team for the London Olympics. You were actually there. I was in Stamford, Connecticut in a room full of digital editors and I was the tennis uh, vertical editor. So I did all the tennis content, um, Serena's win, the Bryan brothers, obviously Andy over Roger. Um, but in that, NBC had to turn the page really quick to Sochi 2014. 
And after that gig, I, I made it very known at that point, I was, you know, 25, 26, that I wanted to work Sochi and they needed someone for figure skating. And, and I knew a little bit about the sport, but I, I sort of tepidly put my hand up of like, oh, I'll do that. Um, but I, I think when I look at the two sports, what I so appreciate about the athletes that are in them, the elite athletes in particular, is that you know, you're out there all on your own. It is a stage, obviously two quite different stages, but it is a stage unlike any other. And, you know, there are these sports like football, like basketball, like even hockey or baseball, where you've, you've got coaching and you've got interaction throughout and game planning and tennis for the most part and figure skating too. They don't have that. It's up to the individual. There's no face mask. There's no Jersey. There's no helmet. And I think to me that really brings out some incredible stories and I, I love telling stories. You know, I'm, I'm a big sports fan, but from going to journalism school when I was 18, I wanted to tell stories. And so I, I feel lucky that those have kind of been the two main sports that I've ended up working in. There are compelling stories from athletes from both, but because of that individual nature that you talked about, but I think there's also something that stands out because the journey to get to that premier level in both those sports is really pretty unique compared to a lot of the other sports. What have you seen over the years in talking to those athletes that, you know, is there something in the DNA that allows them to progress through all those trials and tribulations to get to that elite level? Yeah, a, a singular a singular focus on achievement. And, you know, I think when you look at so many of these athletes can be so well-rounded off of the competitive pitch, whether that be the court or the, the sheet of ice that the skaters are on. But, you know, the drive, the champion mindset, the ability to see something and want to achieve it, and really the ability to be willing to put in that work. You know, I think in tennis, we're very familiar with, the training academies and young kids going away at age 10 or 12 or 13 to try to train and reach that elite level figure skating. It might be a little bit different as far as which country they're in and how the training scheme works, but the, the champion mindset I, I think is big and sort of the ability to believe in oneself that when you're at that junior level, that you can get to the next level that you can get to the next level and that, that is asking a lot of confidence and belief in oneself, not only to do that and, and to perform at the highest levels, um, but to do so at a, a really young age. I mean, we're seeing, you know, figure skaters, especially on the women's side who are coming through at 15, 16, 17. And that's kind of a, a mindset that you and I, uh, us normal, the, the lay people of the world, we're around it a lot, but I, I still try to glean from these athletes, how that shapes them, because I think they can present as, you know, normal everyday people and they are, but I, I think that they've kind of got that extra set of DNA that, that I'm still learning from. And I think that's part of why the stories can be so interesting themselves too. There's another commonality in the sheer internationalness of those sports. And I suspect you're drawn to that because one, you enjoy the travel and you love getting out to all these different places, but two, <laughs> the, the, yes, pre pre COVID uh, you're also someone 
who does like to tell the stories and the backstories when you weave in all the different cultures and ethnicities and everything just adds layers to these stories that you get to tell. Yeah, it really does. And actually, it reminds me that, you know, tennis, I, I could maybe sometimes sort of, you know, cheat a little bit and say that I'm an expert or that I, I have some intel in the sport that um, I could use in my commentary or in my writing or in my analysis. Um, I'm not a figure skating expert, <laughs> far from it. Um, and so, you know, for me, trying to um, see the athletes for where they're coming from. And, you know, obviously I've really enjoyed um, the travel and being able to to be at these different venues and travel the world and see different places. But I've loved watching too, the way that the sports are so different on an international level and that tennis is really truly global. Figure skating is also global, but it's a little bit siloed in, in its different regions of the world, but still when it comes together, there's that competitiveness. And now with social media, these athletes are, are really watching one another and the development and in figure skating, who's doing the quads and who's doing triple triples. And, and um, in tennis, I, I think people keep tabs on each other too, but I've, you love to see obviously the different cultures coming together. And, and I think that it helps make the sport that much more robust. You see it in tennis, obviously, with the different countries who have had success at different times. And then I I think with figure skating, you've seen it sort of in a way of right now, the Russian women are really strong. The Japanese men have been strong for the last few years, but sometimes you get maybe Javier Fernandez from Spain, um, athletes who come from maybe non-figure skating nations that have have that success on an international level. You also have done a lot of work within the Olympics. You mentioned working with NBC at the Olympics. You've worked for Team USA. You're now working for the Olympic Channel. That Olympic movement, what is that attraction? I just, (laughs) I I mean, I, I think you would be similar. I've loved the Olympics since I was, you know, the first the first games I can truly remember is 92 Albertville and then 92 Barcelona. It was the last year that um, the winter and summer games were the same year. And every Olympic since then, I, I've no matter where I am in the world, I grew up in Montana. I went to college in Seattle. I've been in New York since. Um, you know, I, I think that it maybe it doesn't feel that way anymore, but it really felt like the two weeks when the world stopped and just kind of was in awe of these athletes and their competitiveness and the way that they're able to rise above in moments of pressure. And I think especially too, I love the difference between figure skating and tennis. And you could say this about gymnastics and track and field and swimming and a few other Olympic specific sports, downhill skiing, um, it's the pinnacle. And for these Olympic athletes, you know, 2020 has been so challenging, whether for Tokyo or for Beijing 2022, but uh, to train for that peak at one time, you know, to peak at one moment in your career is, is pretty insane. And I have felt sort of sucked in by it. And, you know, obviously growing up in the States, it was NBC's coverage that I watched and the storytelling I thought was great back then. I think it's great now. And I like being just a tiny slice of that pie. I'm going to put you on the spot with a somewhat awkward question then, because you, you painted the picture, I think, very accurately, that this is, 
that Olympic experience is the pinnacle for so many of these athletes. Tennis is in the Olympics only recently, you know, late eighties, it got back into the Olympic games. They have these other events, they're professionals. Yeah. How do you view tennis as an Olympic event? It's different. And I, I don't think any of the athletes would say otherwise. You know, I, I think that, I think Monica Puig was the perfect example in Rio 2016 of what the Olympics might mean differently to different players. And not to say that anyone would ever necessarily deem it less important. And if so, then that's their own choice. But, you know, the majors are 128 singles draw. The Olympics is a 64 draw. The men's at, at the men's event at the majors are best of five at the Olympics. Now they've gone to a full best of three program. And so, you know, I, I think that there's still that specialness to the Olympics for so many tennis players. I think that I'm not going to stamp it with every single one, but I just did, we did an interview a couple of weeks ago with Petra Kvitova. And I know that you've had Katie Spellman, her publicist on the podcast and Petra is a two-time Wimbledon champion. She's been world number two. She's obviously familiar to anyone who's a tennis fan. She was so honest and forthcoming with me about how special and different the Olympics felt to her. And we had her, we did a video recording. So we put together a video package and she had her bronze medal. And she said it, it feels like gold to me because of what it meant to her for her country. And I think that national pride, the representation, we see it a little bit in the Davis cup and the Billie Jean King cup for the men and women, the team events, but uh, to play for country and to also play for your teammates. Petra was talking about how every match she played in Rio, she had different Czech athletes who would come to her matches because everyone's supporting one another. And that I think to your previous question, that's sort of the, the specialness of the Olympics themselves. And, you know, I, I think any tennis player who doesn't necessarily put the Olympics up there with uh, the Grand Slams, I'm obviously biased now because of my role, but <laughs> You know, there's no points and there's no prize money. So those are two big knocks for them now. But to have that to have that opportunity from from the tennis players that I've spoken with, you look at Rafael Nadal, who won obviously Beijing gold and singles in 2008, but then put his heart and soul to win a doubles gold with Mark Lopez in Rio in 2016. Annie Murray has said that he wants to go for a third gold in Tokyo in 2021. Um, you know, it, it's just that little bit of different from the slams. And I think that's why it is special in its own way too. A lot of these athletes, whether the tennis players or these Olympians have opportunities to become national heroes in their homelands. And that comes with a lot of great benefits. It also comes with a lot of pressures as you've had the chance to profile athletes and, and see them rise to this level within their own countries, how have you seen them handle both the pluses and minuses of it? Uh, you know, I, I think that, um, I mean, Billie Jean King saying pressure is a privilege. It's so true. And I, I think sometimes privilege, we can get lost in the positives. It, it is, it can be really tough. It can be really hurtful to a lot of these athletes and, there's, I think, better awareness now and more discussion around um, mental health and how athletes need to and should be taken care of from a mental and emotional standpoint when they're trying to achieve greatness at the Olympics. 
I also had the opportunity to interview Nicholas Masu, who is obviously working now with Dominic Team. And he had the week of his life and it happened to be at the Athens 2004 tennis event. And, you know, here's a guy who I think cracked the top 10 in his career. I think he was career high number nine, but otherwise like, you know, he had, he had a pretty great career, but he won two Olympic gold medals in the span of 36 hours or something. I think it was less than that. And he said it changed his life. He met the president. He became a nationally known hero in Chile and, you know, I, I think I love to see the the support of athletes now from a mental and emotional standpoint. I think athletes like Michael Phelps have been really outspoken in that sphere. And you look at someone like Masu, like Monica Puig, where their life changes for the better in so many ways because the Olympics mean so much in their home country. You've given a couple tennis examples. What are some examples, whether it's figure skating or other sports where an athlete has just stormed to the pinnacle within their own country because of their athletic success? Mm. I mean, I've had the great honor and pleasure of covering Hanyu Yuzuru. And for Tokyo 2020, the Japanese Federation has asked that we use traditional Japanese names. So you start with their surname and you end with their first name. So Yuzuru Hanyu, we call Hanyu Yuzuru. And he's been, he's the first double Olympic back-to-back men's singles champion since Dick Button in 1948 and 1952. And he is, uh, he is a megastar in Japan. And so to, you know, I, I first covered him in the fall of 2013 in the lead up to Sochi. And then he wins in Sochi. He beats Patrick Chan. That was kind of the showdown there and then goes through all of these injuries and doubts and works with Brian Orser in Toronto at the cricket club there. Brian Orser's created a great program. And after he won in Pyeongchang, his second consecutive, uh, the, the Winnie the Pooh bears are raining down in Pyeongchang. If, if you've never seen that image, Google it, Han Yu Pooh bear. Trust me, it's insane. <laughs> I will include a, a link to an image or video in the show notes. Okay, good. Uh, so we went to the Japanese national house, Japan house, myself and my producer in Pyeongchang, and the media attention was mind-boggling. And I got to speak to a few Japanese journalists. I, I knew this prior, but Hanyu Yuzuru has change the face of the sport as far as the way that it is so athletic now with so many quad jumps, but it is also maintains the artistry within the sport. And Japan sees figure skating maybe a little bit differently than we do. And those two things I think have been the perfect sauce for him to be not only a sporting hero in Japan, but a celebrity and culture, cultural hero in that nation. And he's one of the most famous people in all of Japan. And I think that he's really shaped a lot of um, what they see as success um, in sport today. How would you describe that atmosphere of being around the Olympics, not just in the venues and at the competitions, but in the village and the ceremonies and, and just around the atmosphere? Cause it is truly unique. Yeah, it is. I, I you know, growing up watching it, watching uh, Albertville, Barcelona, Lillehammer, Atlanta, Nagano, Salt Lake, of course, Sydney, 
you only get kind of the TV scope. And I, I think for people listening at home, you're for the most part, you're just going to get it on TV or now we have podcasts and social media, but uh, I, the energy is incredible. Uh, I love the national feel of people walking around and you've got people with flags all over them and hats and gear. And um, it, it, it's a, it's a festival that, you know, we might see in music or food um, and it's for sport. And, uh, you know, f- for me, I, I have done three of them on site as a reporter producer and still kind of being there. And I think seeing it and feeling all of it has been incredible, but seeing and feeling people living out their dreams and people putting themselves out there. And no matter if you're winning a gold medal or if you take 15th, how, how much it means to people to be a part of that. And, you know, the the spirit and the resiliency of being a, a part of the movement Um, does it have its flaws? Sure. You know, everything does in in the modern world, but, uh, I think it truly still represents a a lot of great in our world. And, um, yeah, I think that's what still is getting me up every day and, (laughs) um, you know, very hopeful for Tokyo 2020 in 2021. And, uh, it's going to be a quick turnaround from Tokyo to Beijing. You mentioned that you grew up in Montana. How did sports factor into your childhood? <laughs> well, I'm one of six, uh, and my parents were smart. They got us out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, I mean, it was YMCA basketball and soccer and track and field and football. Um, tennis really ended up being my sport in the family because we were two blocks away from the uh, the public courts that were used for the summer tennis program. So once I got put into that when I was five or six years old, it just became the thing that I wanted to do. And I played endless hours of tennis against, we had this great garage wall behind our house. So I played two, I, I'll never play as much real tennis as I did against the wall, if that makes sense. Um, but you know, for us, I think for my parents, it was about, getting us out, getting us active in the winters. We went skiing um, almost every weekend. Um, And I think for my parents, it was about community building and teamwork and competitiveness. And I I think they wanted us to be really tired at night (laughs) so that we would go to to hell to sleep. But I I think too, that there were, you know, they were both raised in rather sporting families and my dad's one of seven, my mom's one of five. So it, it, it just was them passing that torch on. And for me, I found a lot of independence with tennis. My brothers were big soccer players. Um, but I, I, I think that's kind of the one thing now I see with my nieces and nephews that they're able to pick up on too. And, and you know, maybe there's a little bit of a different approach with team sports and the way that kids, the way that things are approached now. But um yeah, I, I wouldn't change that at all. When did journalism come into the picture for you? Pretty, pretty soon. I mean, we, I, I loved stats and numbers. You and I share that as well. I loved, um, we would get the newspaper every morning and I wanted the sports section and my brother and I would kind of share it. And I was very into Montana sports of the basketball and the football and the track and soccer and 
telling anyone who would listen about what stat meant this and this person ran that fast. And that I can remember doing that when I was in second, third, fourth grade. Um, I got too many basketball stat books for Christmas because we would go to the high school or college basketball games and I would just sit there and take stats and not for anything other than myself. (laughs) Um, I I would say then the journalism, you know, the true writing or understanding of like, oh, I'm reading Howard Frederick right now at the kitchen table, which I I did, by the way, and he's still out there churning away. Um, I think probably early high school, like I knew that I liked writing in middle school. And then I realized like, oh, there's a high school newspaper, I could maybe do this. And so then I can remember kind of junior, senior year of high school, really feeling like, oh, journalism can be a a true, um, not only a passion, but a career. And that's why I I then sort of took the route to go to journalism school in Seattle. You mentioned Howard. Were there journalists or broadcasters, people in the business who were catching your eye at a young age that were kind of inspiring you going, that'd be kind of cool to do what that person's doing? Yeah, I mean, Howard, for sure. I mean, he's still with the AP. He's, you know, now been a colleague of mine for several years. Um, Chris Clary at the New York Times, of course, and the tennis work that he's done. But, you know, way back when of the Bob Costas and Mary Carrillo and and their coverage for NBC and for the Olympics. But also, I mean, my brothers and I watch a lot of SportsCenter. So, you know, Stuart Scott and Trey Wingo and all of these uh, we just watched The Last Dance. I think everyone did this spring when it came out on the Chicago Bulls and their their dynasty in the 90s. And I was just like, I was at my house in Montana because of the pandemic and we're watching all of these sports reporters, um, Leslie, Leslie Visser, I think, and just a whole collection, Hannah Storm and all of these people who I was like, oh shit, like you helped really shape how I saw sports. And, um, you know, really... Um, really appreciated that. And um, I think I'm saying it right. Is it uh, Summer Sanders was the swimmer? Mm. Right? Yep. She, I remember she did the Nickelodeon, I think it was a Nickelodeon TV show and she was in Sochi with us. And I mean, I, I sort of embarrassingly went up to her and I was like, I watched you like all the time in the nineties. And I think she's kind of like, Oh, okay, cool. Thanks. Um, You're probably not the first, <laughs> but yeah, you know, I, I think um, sort of for a long time, it felt sort of unattainable and going to Seattle from Montana. I think that taught me that, that the, the real world existed out there beyond my Rocky mountain walls in Montana. And that felt um, yeah, it, it felt like it was something that was attainable in college. It, it became very attainable because you created your own opportunity. You go to New York first on a trip, and then you just make the move there. And both times you literally just made it happen. How did you get your breaks once you got across the country to New York? Yeah, you know, I I actually just spoke last week to a, a senior, a high school class. They're all seniors, but it's a Columbia uh, career, continuing career um, class of high schoolers who want to be in journalism. And I I don't have great advice for when I do these kind of things, but I, the the one thing I said to them is that the worst that we can get is a no. And so if you get a no, then then you turn around and you try it again. And 
I was telling you before we started, uh, my two roommates are both Broadway performers and they go into audition rooms, you know, every week and they get rejected to their face. <laughs> and it's just like, and for us as, as writers or as presenters or, or people working in sports media or, or journalism, you're pitching stories or you're applying for jobs or what have you. And, and so, um, when I got my internship at Tennis Magazine, I, I walked into their office building because I was in New York on a trip and um, I ended up interning there, which was a great experience for the most part. And once I moved to New York, it was really about just asking questions. And uh, really my, my first big break in New York was in January of 2009. I had been in New York for a few months and it was right when blogs were like the thing. It was like podcasts now, like everyone had a blog and they started a blog on the New York Times called Straight Sets and it was their tennis blog. And I called every publicly listed or phone number that I could find of the New York Times and finally got, I don't even remember the editor's name, but she passed me up on to Bob Getz and Bob Getz was editing Straight Sets and he was like, well, we, we only can pay you for stuff that goes in print. At that point, that was their policy. He's like, but I'll, I'll take anything. We're just starting this blog. So a few months later, I'm a New York Times bylined writer. And I hadn't even been in New York yet a year. And so that was, so then I could, you know, it was like, I wrote for this little tennis blog on the New York Times, but then I was 23 and I could use that to anyone I pitched of, hey, check out, check out my work in the New York Times. And that then kind of gave me the, the confidence and the bounce to, to move forward. How hard was it to break through to actually get into the print edition and off the blog? <laughs> I mean, the first one, I, I think the first one, I didn't even realize that it was in print. It was like, I'd gone up to New Haven for the final and they told me it was for straight sets. And, you know, the next day someone texts me and they're like, send me a picture of, I think Wozniak had won New Haven for like the 15th time in a row or something. <laughs> and it was in print, which was awesome. And then, yeah, then the next few that I got in print, it, it was very much kind of, I uh, had to be a little pushy, but also learning like, you've got to pitch something with a specific angle and with some exclusivity to it. I remember interviewing Pete Sampras. I can't remember if you were at this one at the garden when it was, Sampras and uh, whoever the collection of players was, this was 2009 or 10. Um, but, you know, I got 10 minutes with Pete Sampras and, and then I got to pitch that to the Times and the Times was like, oh yeah, sure, of course we'll take that. So just kind of like seeing those opportunities, but then learning from them of how do I, how do I make it my own so it, it is their own so that the, the Times felt like I, I was, um, yeah, an asset to them, at least at that time. Coming out of college, obviously, you would have learned a lot studying journalism about that storytelling piece. How much did you come away with in terms of how to pitch and how to work with editors? And how much of that was just learned by doing? A pretty good mix, 50-50. Uh, you know, the journalism program that I went to at Seattle U was fantastic. It was newspaper-based um, our three sort of core professors were all Seattle Times alum or contributors. And so it was very much about, you know, hard news writing, sourcing, um, fact checking, you know, really, uh, I felt like great, great journalism, investigating, um, 
but there's nothing like real world experience. You know, I, I, I did one of my internships at the Seattle times and I just remember like sweating so much every day. Cause I was like in the newsroom at the Seattle times and wanting to speak up at the editorial meetings and not knowing how to pitch. And I think too, not, um, not selling myself short, uh, you know, uh, if, if you have an idea and it's your idea and you've done the research to know that no one else has that idea or no one else has done it in this way, or there's this new angle or trend, a lot of that was experience. And a lot of that is what I was, I think Pete talking about earlier is the no. So, you know, you pitch, it's a no, all right, move on. Like, you know, feel the bruise, feel the pain a little bit. And then it's similar to tennis players. You know, you lost that point, next point look to the strings. What do I, what do I have on my strings? And then let's, let's see how, how I can create greatness for myself in this next iteration. You got the opportunity to, to probably see a little bit different perspective on the business with a couple of the, the jobs you had, uh, something called powerwall.com, which apparently <laughs> is like a precursor to MSNBC, uh, but Newsweek, Daily Beast, where it, from what I can gather, you were kind of on the editorial desk, but also... Yeah very much digitally focused and probably getting an understanding of clicks and mm -hmm. what resonates and why content gets more views than other content with those experiences. How did that information help kind of steer you towards what you would start doing down the road? Mm. Yeah. Powerwall was, uh, <laughs> it was a joint venture and it was, um, it was meant to be Hollywood meets DC and this is 2012, 2011. I mean, it, it, sadly it, it was a precursor to, to what we see now, but, um, yeah, I, I worked at the daily beast and this was right before I got that job for NBC Olympics in London, 2012. And, um, it really taught me about, you know, being concise, telling telling good stories up front what do people need to know what's a good headline um you know i, th I think there's a lot of clickbaity stuff that I, I learned how to do it and then how not to do it or how i i didn't want to do it sort of personally um but i, I really wanted to be in news that was kind of my initial once i got to new york the tennis thing didn't feel like it was other than kind of the one-offs with the new york times it didn't feel like it was going to be a full-time job so I switched my focus to the new stuff and, you know, it was also competitive and it was smart people and it was being in downtown New York and you're in an office and being in editorial meetings and having to pitch and needing to pitch and um, be, you know, Daily Beast at that point was um, they had just acquired Newsweek, part of IAC. It was in this beautiful building downtown. I think it's actually still there. And, you know, it was, it was really that era of who's the next Huffington Post or how, how are we going to be different? And BuzzFeed wasn't around yet. And um, I, I think I actually, yeah, sponged more out of that than, than I would have realized that I then took into the next few years when I transitioned full-time into tennis. And that transition full-time into tennis was more transitioning really into freelance and creating your own calendar, getting those gigs making all these calls, probably getting told no quite a bit. What was that process like for you though, to just go all in and say, this is the path forward. This is what I'm going to pursue. You know, I, I do believe in luck, but I don't believe that it's just about luck. So I was lucky that I got 
the London 2012 NBC gig. And that was actually through Powerwall because I had NBC contacts from msnbc.com. They helped me get this job for, for that. And then that same summer, I got an offer to do, <laughs> this is, it's such a throwback. I got an offer to do all of the written content for the new US Open app. <laughs> mm. So the USDA had asked me through American Express to write everything that people were going to see in the app. And that took me essentially from June into October. And that was only four months of work, but I, I realized that, okay, if I can, if I can keep this bounce going, then perhaps this is a, a chance for me really to, to have a, a, a career out of freelancing. And, and I wanted to be in sports. Obviously I, I had initially moved to New York to be in tennis, gone the news route. And I, I, I took a chance and honestly, Pete, I, um, it, it wasn't smooth sailing. I think this is about the time when I met you and I was kind of not grasping at straws, but um, I was um, working with Liza Haran doing uh, her new service for the, the tennis industry, which was um, kind of a nice steady gig. And then started to work more with Tennis Australia because they had given me the chance to do the Australian Open in 2012. And then it was like, I mean, I am calling, emailing, you know, trying to track down any Indian Wells, Matt Van Tynan, Charleston, uh, Eleanor Adams and her team, Wimbledon, Alex Willis. Uh, I mean, anyone who might sort of take my call or email, I, I was chasing that kind of stuff. I, I still remember being on the phone with the editorial team for Charleston at like four in the morning in Australia because they wanted to interview me in January of 2013 and I was in Australia and um, I was still um, I was still doing weddings on the weekend as a cater waiter because it was I, I wanted sort of this to be my job and I think I did that for two or three years into my freelance until I, I landed my USA Today job because I needed cash from from the weekend so that I could support my day job. And when you're doing that freelance stuff, you've got to factor in, you're bringing on those expenses as well. And you got to get to these places. And sometimes it's covered, sometimes it's not. You're kind of getting a real life NBA as you go through this because you got to become Nick Inc. Yeah. What were the hardest parts of that process for you? You know, it, I, I wouldn't change it because I was a little older. So, you know, I, I was 26, 27, and maybe some, for some that experience would start right out of college. You know, you go get your MBA right af after you graduate undergrad. So I had a, a little more experience as far as life goes. And I also... um Living in New York, I think New York kind of ages you pretty quickly. And so I, I was living in Manhattan and, but it really was like, how am I going to sublet my room? What's the cheapest? You know, I, I didn't choose one airline to fly with until several years into my career because I was always just looking for the cheapest ticket. I didn't care about allegiance to one airline. I just needed the cheapest, you know, and Airbnb was coming up right, right around then. So I, that was big for me. But I, I think actually that helped me learn how to how to be and, and you know push myself forward and start to learn how much you give of your time and what are you doing for free and you know I I think that you have to kind of make those deals with yourself 
so that you can, um, yeah, so that you can feel established and you can feel as though you are making it in a career, but you also want people to, to give you that chance. And that's a, that's a dance. That's still a push-pull even today. And I think for any young person coming up, that, that's a push-pull as well. And while you're dancing, you're also walking on a tightrope. <laughs> yeah, and you yeah. have these parallel things going on here where you've got your name in, in ESPN and New York Times and USA Today and these journalistic institutions, and you're getting to write for them. But you are making contacts with the BNP Paribas Open, with Wimbledon, with Charleston and the family circle, you know, where you're getting opportunity to work for the events. There's a little bit of gray area between those two. How do you navigate those waters where you've got to be loyal to the event you're working for, but also to your journalistic instincts? Yeah, that was tough. Uh, And I, you know, it's still something that maybe is a little bit of a dance still today for me, but, um, you know, the one the one that really stands out to me is in 2015, I, I became the chief tennis writer for USA Today. And I did that role for two years after Doug Robson had done it for many years. And that was not a full-time role. It was 10 weeks a year. It was around the slams. It, you know, paid fine, but it wasn't going to make a living for me. And so I was doing this work for the tournaments outside of that, which was very pr very marketing, very safe, sometimes maybe a little bit boring, social media, that sort of stuff. When Sharapova was found to have tested positive um, for you know uh, her doping controversy in 2015, I remember my editor calling me and that was right before Indian Wells and I was working for Indian Wells. <laughs> and I, I just said to her, I said, listen, I, I, I can't wear both hats. I, I, you've got to give the story to someone else. I know I'm your tennis writer. I think I ended up writing around it some. I covered it obviously at the French Open the next time I worked for USA Today. But that was that first big challenge of, okay, I'm, I'm working in this one sphere and I've got to be careful that I'm, I'm not and I, I always tried to do that with um, professionalism. And, you know, I, I think that if if you were looking at it from 35,000 feet, you could be critical of it and say you were trying to wear too many hats at once, but who in tennis doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I, I think after leaving USA Today at the end of 2016, I was focused on understanding what I was doing sort of holistically and that I wanted to grow my on-camera presence from 2017 onward. Um, And that's also a decision that I've made even this year in taking my role with the Olympic Channel is that I was freelancing and I've chosen to now be more full-time with them because of the opportunity that it allows me for Tokyo and Beijing. And because I understand exactly sort of what that means to be a part of a, a bigger organization. It's interesting to hear you talk about being able to take that holistic view. And that really, in my mind, I'm envisioning stepping back and really looking at it broadly. And I think that's hard for people to do, especially in a sport like tennis, because the off season is about a minute and a half long and you get into your routine. And as soon as you're done with one event, you're already thinking about the next event and you're making the deal for four events from now. And it's, it's a cycle. It's, yeah. you're the, you get to be a hamster on the wheel. Mm. How do you pause it enough to, to take that holistic view? 
Mm. I, I had to learn on the job. You know, you know, I, did I make some mistakes along the way? Absolutely. But who doesn't? And, and you know, were there times where I felt kind of pulled in one direction and then pulled in the opposite for sure. I, I use the Sharapova example in particular because I remember that being a time where specifically I, I said, I, I cannot do this. This is, it's not fair for me to be doing a silly video with the players at Indian Wells, um, you know, where we're asking them who, whose childhood photo is this? And then going into press and asking them about Sharapova and her positive doping test that it just wasn't, it didn't mesh. And I, th I think that's kind of a, a, a greater example of what I was trying to do week in and week out while also still being on the hamster wheel, you know, still going to Australia, still doing work for the ITF, going to Indian Wells, doing Wimbledon. I mean, those are, those are a lot of, that's a lot of different bosses. That's a lot of different sort of um, realms to be a part of. But I, I think having the journalism background having the experience that I did, having the understanding of how all of those different things worked. When I was working for Charleston, I wasn't working for Wimbledon. I was working for Charleston. Same with Indian Wells, same with the French Open, same when I did any work for the ITF. And not to say that I was, you know, reinventing tennis content and how things played out on social media, but trying to understand what does the All England Club want out of their you know, at that time we had a live blog. I was live blogging. What did they want out of the live blog for Wimbledon.com that we weren't necessarily doing for the US Open series on social media when I switched gears two weeks later and I was working for the USTA. So um, I, I'm sure there were times where I was double, triple, quadruple dipping, but that's the hamster wheel that, that we talk about. And I also think that I, I tried to do all of it with professionalism and, you know, maybe not smoothly all the time, <laughs> but, but tried, tried to do it well and understand sort of the different beasts of it. The transition to on camera, what drew you to step away from the keyboard and in front of a camera? Yeah, I mean, Matt Fantinen, uh, you know, he's a friend of both of ours at Indian Wells. I, had, I think I'd kind of seen other people doing it um, once I got into social media management and writing and understanding that content was content and that it was something that I wanted to try my hand at. And he really gave me that opportunity in 2014 uh, in Indian Wells. And it then took another two and a half years for me to really say that it, it was what I, I really truly felt like I wanted to do as much as I could. And so when I left USA Today, it was a whole new ball game of putting together a reel and, um, you know, trying to kind of hone a craft that I wasn't trained in. You know, I didn't go to broadcast journalism school. And so learning a lot from those people that we talked about earlier of the pros from the 90s, but then also understanding social media and creativity and what works on Twitter and what might make a good Instagram post, just trying to understand how to make my own path in, into that different part of the industry. What did you need to learn about the process of creating those pieces. Cause you've, by now, you know how to write a piece, you know what you need to do to research, do an interview, sit down behind the keyboard and punch something out. What yeah. did you need to learn about the process of actually that content creation? For video or just yeah. in general? Video. 
Yeah, I learned from the editors. I mean, I any of those events that I've worked at, you know, whether whether it be Wimbledon, the U.S. Open live show we've done, um, NBC, I was in Pyeongchang, I was in Sochi, I was a written journalist in Pyeongchang, I was on camera. Um, I learned from the editors, you know, you know, what makes a good package, be tight off the top, you know, smile twice as big as you think you need to, let the athlete lead, you know, ask a concise question and shut the <laughs> up because they care about the athlete and obviously wanting to be insightful and energetic and kind of serve the best content that I could, whether we're trying to get the players to laugh or, you know, share secrets of their training. Um, but really give people, invite them in with sort of, um, being myself and telling them that they could come along for the ride as we talk to Roger or Rafa or whoever we're speaking with, and then hopefully revealing something that they haven't necessarily necessarily seen or felt from those athletes before. There are a lot of different things that you get to do. And I kind of want to talk about each of them. I'm going to start with one that's probably a little bit off the beaten path though. As you start to work for these events, you get into the sponsor and the hospitality business. And, and it's a different thing altogether because you're usually playing to a, a live room uh, of people who are there to be entertained. And you go in there with your storytelling instincts, but you want to put on a show. <laughs> what are those rooms like? And, and to a certain extent, it is unique because there might be a different side of the athlete because they're not on camera. This isn't an interview. They, they also feel that entertainment factor when they're in that room <laughs> every room's different uh, i mean you know uh, you guys in cincinnati have had the opportunity to be in a small intimate room of 15 executives and i'm chatting with them with rafael nadal and uh, you know the next day it's 400 people and it is western and southern it, it's huge and it's roger federer and, and it's it's quite different those those feelings I think always trying to start off with something that is light, something that hopefully is going to make the athlete laugh, make the people in attendance laugh and connect them to of, have you gotten your graders ice cream yet? Or, you know, how are you enjoying, uh, have you been across the highway to the, um, to Kings Island, I think it's called, or yeah, to the mm -hmm. roller coaster. Um, uh, feel, feeling, feeling things out. And I always have note cards. I always write things down. I always am over-prepared. That's just my nature, but then kind of feeling, okay, what's the, oh, this is a ladies power lunch. You know, how am I, how am I connecting and not making assumptions? How am I connecting this group of people with this athlete? And, you know, also giving just that little bit of insight of, Oh, Roger, you bring your family every year to Cincinnati. What do you guys love about renting a house here and just feeling like you're Ohioans for Ohioans, Ohioans for the week? Um, that I think that sort of connecting people, that's, it's the same sort of idea of keyboard, social media, on camera, VIP treatment of just making people feel like they're a part of something bigger their post-competition interviews and you talked about doing this a little bit with the Olympics and that's in a mix zone, which is just, it's a scene. So for those who haven't experienced it, what is an Olympic mix zone like, first of all? <laughs> um, 
gosh, they're also, uh, you know, they're to watch the athletes go through those mix zones. I mean, they start with, you know, whatever the, the big national host broadcast is for whatever country you're in. And then they might do 10, 12, 15 interviews that are essentially the same. I'll never forget Gabriela Papadakis, who she won silver in the ice dance in Pyeongchang. She had the the worst nightmare of her, her dress came unhooked at the beginning of her rhythm dance. And she essentially spent her entire Olympic debut holding her dress up throughout her program, which was first off incredible that she was able to focus. And, you know, it's another way to say how incredible these athletes, but then I watched her go through the mix zone and she's getting asked the same, you know, how, how did you do it? How did you, and trying to hold back tears. Um, you know, I, when you talk about Olympic mix zones, I, I think about Hanyu Yuzuru. I think about athletes like Simone Biles, um, I, the, the crush of media and it almost takes as much or more focus for the Olympians to get through that as it does to compete. And I think at that point too, you know, yourself, people like Eleanor Preston, uh, managing a good mix zone is an art. It's not just a science, it's an art and making the athletes feel as though they're empowered. Um, I think that's really important. And on, on the flip side, you know, myself, you've got to have a, a strong forearm to make sure that you've, <laughs> you've got your microphone as close as possible. And, you know, also teamwork of you might be elbowing the person from AFP or from Reuters or from AP, but how about, hey, how can I help you? What do you, what do you need to ask? What do you, you know, did you get that audio? Hey, can I, you know, how can we be a team in this atmosphere? Um, it is crazy to kind of watch the, for the Olympic sports, gymnastics, figure skating, you know, you go from kind of the, the regular season into the Olympics and the way that the interest skyrockets and someone like Adam Rapon, who in Pyeongchang, he finished 10th in men's singles. And you could argue that he won pretty much the entire Olympics otherwise. And he won the Olympics in the mix zone. I mean, his performances were incredible. He skated three times he is a beautiful skater, but the way that he understood how to use the mix zone to his advantage, uh, I think that that was really powerful too. And it really is a gauntlet. I mean, the player, the athlete comes off and they go through a broadcast mix zone first with the TV, like you said, and then there's you know, radios and then there's print beyond that. And it is the same questions every time. So for you being on the other side of usually a, a bike rack, you're asking questions in that environment. How do you manage getting what you need, but also trying to get something that the four previous questioners and the three next questioners aren't also getting? Oh yeah, that's no, that's a great question. I, in Pyeongchang, we were the digital video team. And so Andrea Joyce would always get them first because she was NBC broadcast and so I would go and listen to, you know, I had kind of my few questions that I thought I wanted to ask, but then I would go and listen to what Andrea would ask them so that I was asking them different things. So she might ask them the three questions that I wanted to ask. And so then I would have to kind of change my gears because for NBC Digital, the reason we even got to be there when I was in Pyeongchang was that 
our onus was get something different, get, get the quote that they're not going to find on TV and, you know, things, the platforms are now as such where all of that stuff is streaming, it's all on social media. And so they want that different stuff. Um, I think it's that mix of wanting to be different, but also kind of find um, the story. And sometimes the story is going to be the same for everyone. But that's, Pete, why I think it's important for us as storytellers to know our subjects as well as we can so that sure I might be asking Nathan Chen the figure skater the same question seven previous interviewers did but no one knew that his mom told him that five years ago or you know how, how do I kind of just give that extra layer to it so that it feels um, so it feels different. You've done some other work that's got to be different in the way you do it um, one is match commentary and actually calling a tennis match, which by the way, is hard in the best of circumstances. Some of the tennis match calling that you've done is for radio backhand to backhand. They're exchanging back. I, mean, I can't even imagine what that's like to sit in a booth and do that. How have you found that live match commentary experience? <laughs> I mean, I'm no Gigi Salmon, that's for sure. Um, no, I, I it, again, it, it's it's learning at every turn. It, it's being a sponge, and I, I've I've never done all of it perfectly. But um, you know, I, I really have appreciated sort of learning from other people and understanding how I can how I can try to bring my understanding of the sport, my understanding of storytelling, my understanding of a broadcast product or a social media product to it. And one of those one of those realms is has been ATP tennis radio. I've also worked on the radio teams at Roland Garros and the US Open I think all the slams actually, <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know, those were, those were kind of the reps of like um, Russell, who's the producer for ATP radio. First, he put me in the reporter role because I, I'm comfortable kind of doing standalone news pieces and interviews. And then he put me in color commentary and then a little bit of play by play us open radio. This last year, I was on the world feed TV commentary team when I was in the radio booth, I, I was a color person. So I was helping them tell that story. I, I wasn't calling ball by ball. I've done it a bit. It is really damn hard. I worked, I got to work with some great people at the US Open this year. I mean, Gigi Salmon is top notch for ATP radio. Um, Ed Cohen, who's the Knicks play-by-play -play guy, he's on US Open radio. He's incredible. Brian Clark does a bunch of that stuff too. Um, there's an art to it. And I hope that you know, as, as we talk about sort of my different, um, my different hats, I, I hope that it doesn't sound like I haven't worked my ass off in each of them because I have, and um, I'm, I'm not a master of any of them, but I, I, I love to learn and I love to tell stories. And I, I have the, you and I both have had the great honor and pleasure of working in these realms that we, we get to be close to these athletes in these inspiring moments. And, and I think that's kind of the drive to keep, to keep learning. And, I, and I'm doing it now with Olympic channel of how do we, how do I build a, a great web story? And they use different systems for our content management and it's stuff that I haven't necessarily done before, but I'm like, okay, I, I've got to learn and understand this because I haven't worked in it before. 
the events that you work for, a lot of them have grown from let's create a nice piece of digital content for social media to let's create our own digital program. And that's kind of a shoulder program around what people are watching at home. And you've had the opportunity to do that now, I think with Skate America, but also at Wimbledon and the US Open. And a live program, especially when you're literally filling time sometimes just between matches, is a totally different type of journalism than writing a recap, let alone other video stuff that you've done. What was it in doing those programs that surprised you the most about the challenge of that live show? They've been my favorite jobs. Uh, I, um, you know, US Open now, which we did in 2019, we weren't able to do it obviously this year because of the pandemic. Um, Wimbledon Channel, I worked for them for three years. We've, uh, we've done a taped show at the French Open, or excuse me, a live show, but a 30 minute show. Um, yeah, you mentioned the ice desk from Skate America, from US Figure Skating. Um, uh, you know, for me, it's kind of the perfect marriage of the the linear TV sort of, you know, in a studio, let's talk about what just happened to social media and being a little more conversational. And the voice that I'm using right now with you is the kind of voice that I want to be using with the fans at home, because it feels like I'm in, I'm hoping that it feels like I'm inviting them to be a part of the conversation. And so I have... I love that it's a little more free flowing, that it's not necessarily as um, pointed and tight. And I, I have done TV productions and they're really, they're really, really hard <laughs> because as you know, from ESPN, it's, it's down to the millisecond and, you know, the, the greatest of greats, they make it look, they, they make it look easy because of how relaxed they are and the way that they can move from one thing to, to the next, but you've got a producer in your ear and with the web products, that exists a little bit, but it, it's it's meant to be a complementary product. It's meant to be a, an OTT. It's meant to be, a, you know, as you said, on the shoulders of the bigger events. So for US Open now, we were everything but the live tennis. And, and so that was really fun. It was practice cam and who's in the gym and let's go to this live press conference. And, oh, we've got Diego Schwartzman on set now. And look at this lobster roll. I mean, it's just like, all of those things that that kind of make the event, and we were talking about this earlier with the Olympics, is what kind of makes these events tick. Um, those are those live products, and trying to bring that to people, whether they're watching in Russia or Romania or Rio de Janeiro, um, to bring that through a, a TV screen. I, I think that's kind of the beauty of what is otherwise the social media beast. You mentioned wanting to know your subjects as well as you can to add that extra layer. Yeah. You're working in these sports that tennis is that hamster wheel or figure skating where, you know, we see them come together for major events, but otherwise they're off of their own practicing. What are the methods that you're using to not only keep up with everything that's happening, but be able to then retain something and know that, oh, four years ago, this happened that could tell part of what we just saw, help tell that story. Uh, a lot of note taking, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, I think knowing, you know, knowing your subjects really well is, is really important. Um, you know, last week I was asked to cover some women's football, uh, European women's football for Olympic channel. I, I don't know European women's football that well. And so I probably was 
an hour slower out of the gate than my editor would have wanted me to, but I wanted to understand what I was writing about. And, um, you know, I think that's been really important to me in tennis is that I, I love following these players on social media. I, I love telling their stories. And I think it's been maybe the challenge that I've felt like I've been met with in figure skating is that I'm not a figure skater. I've been a handful of times. Your, your daughter could do spins around me on, on the ice <laughs> rink. But I, I've come to know the stories more and I've had to lean on the stories more because I don't know the technique, the technical side of the sport that well. And so wanting to connect with people at home is whether it's an editor or a producer or, you know, a head of content, that's a pretty consistent theme is how do you, what's important to Pete in Jacksonville watching the Tokyo Olympics, you know, how, how do you make those connections? And so I think that's why the story, the story piece of it is so important and knowing that part for me is so important. Just functionality though. You take these notes. I mean, do you just yeah. have reams of notebooks? Do you, is this electronic? Like, how do you keep it all organized? Because I would think across all these different sports and all these different personalities, there's a ton of information that's coming through to you. Are you a notebook guy? What are, what's your... So I am a, I want to write out the notes by yeah. hand, but then I transfer it to Evernote because then I have it in the cloud and it's available on whatever device might be on me at the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for a long time, I was notebooks. I mean, I, I have um, my my bookshelf is behind me. I've got piles and piles of them. I have I have slowly transitioned to the the Notepad app, which is both on my phone and my computer. So then, if I'm you know if smoke is coming out of my keyboard and I'm taking notes for something, um, you know I, I've got a figure skating tab, an Olympic panel tab, a tennis tab but then I can open it on my phone. And if I'm running to a mix zone, I've got my three questions for Adam Rapon. And then if I need to edit them or, you know, you said this in 2015. Yeah. Now, now it's much more of the digital stuff, even though I, I do still, I, I used to do it like the notebook used to be like full of it. Now it's like kind of hit and miss. Um, I, I kind of wish that I, I used it more. <laughs> Beyond all the storytelling, you've had the opportunity to be an advocate for, LGBTQ, visibility and inclusion. What have you been able to do and how has that been received? Yeah, you know, thanks for asking about that. I um, I really felt like I saw an opportunity in tennis a few years ago to continue a conversation that so many of the great leaders in our sport had started with their bravery decades and decades before. You know, that props us to Martina and Billie Jean and so many others who have lived their truth out loud and who have, you know, at times that cost them big things in their life. Martina has been very outspoken about that, Navratilova. Um, the onus, the question that always came to me, being a queer man working in tennis, living in New York City was, oh, well, who are the gay tennis players? And I, I started getting it almost too much where I was like, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, in one sense it did matter, but I took that little bit of frustration in my personal life and I turned it into what's called the LGB tennis series. And I was lucky enough that Brian Vahaley, who had come out the year prior to with John Wertheim um, in Sports Illustrated on his podcast, 
he agreed to do an event with me before the US Open. And really the idea, Pete, was that it was a chance to have a conversation and to kind of get beyond the who is gay in tennis because we've seen so many brave women who have come out in their careers. We also had Casey Delacqua at that event that night, which was really cool. And Casey talked about one, how when she came out, no one cared <laughs> that, that it, you know, in the best way possible, no one cared, but that she also had the best season of her career when she came out. Brian on the flip side, on the same stage at the same time that night, talked about not being able to come out for years until after he retired. And so, since that first event in 2018 at the U.S. Open, we've done a variety of events at the Australian Open, at Wimbledon, and again at the U.S. Open, where we've included the likes of Billie Jean, Renee Stubbs, Jason Collins from the NBA has been a part of it. Kevin Anderson has been a, a huge supporter of what we've been doing. The All England Club had their first on-site LGBT official event at the chairman's house, actually. Billie Jean came and spoke to a group of young queer people about bravery and about leadership. And to me, it's always just been about moving the ball forward. And the conversations are so many. You know, we haven't even touched trans issues or trans rights in sports. And, and I think that's kind of our, our next big um, sphere. And so for me, I've learned along the way too, because even as a, a white cis male who identifies as gay, there's so much for me to learn from these different storytellers. And it's, it has been a chance to, to help, uh, I think, tell those stories, but also um, educate myself uh, along the way too. In reading up on it, you know, one of the things that you commented, the only issue that's ever come is internally. Yeah. which I thought was really interesting. And it, it seems like that there hasn't been any sort of negative reaction. It's all been really received very positively. Is that accurate? Yeah, the, you know, the, the only sort of quote unquote criticism I've ever gotten is why aren't we doing more? And my question back is, come on over, like, let's do it. And, and there's tons of, you know, um, there's tons of great organizations who are, are doing the work from a corporate standpoint and um, in sports there that, I, that, you know, mine was just on my free time. And for me, you know, personally, the challenge is being in a very heteronormative space sports mostly is, I think that's probably maybe one of the reasons why I've been drawn to sports like figure skating, like tennis, where it's more individual. I'm not in an NFL locker room that doesn't feel as intimidating I don't know how that feels. I'm guessing I would feel quite intimidated. But for me, just again, going back to the worst you can get is a no, kind of the understanding that the worst I can get is if I don't just try and sort of ask of myself, okay, well, you're sick of this one question. Let's ask different questions. And um, yeah, it, it's, been, it's been a good personal challenge for myself in a, a professional sphere. I have a few rapid fire questions about right. your career. I want to throw your way. What's the best individual performance you've been able to see? Oof, a lot. Um, oh, wow. I mentioned Han Yu and Pyeongchang. Um, uh, the figure skating event actually in Pyeongchang was incredible. Um, you know, being able to be, uh, 
I think for me, back to back being, I had the chance to host a digital show at the Australian Open in 2017. And it was, you know, maybe the, the golden glistening weekend of tennis that, that, you know, will we ever get it again? Serena beats Venus in the women's final and Roger beats Rafa in the men's final. And I got to interview both Serena and Roger after, after those wins. Um, so yeah, and while and, they're carrying the trophy around, I mean, not just interview <laughs> them at some point, but like they still have their gear on and they're carrying the trophy. Totally. Uh, I mean, it was, it was wild for me as an experience, but I also think, you know, that, I mean, Roger, especially Serena had a, a, a straight set match. It wasn't straightforward, but you know, obviously we learned later that she was pregnant at the time. I think those 28 hours are, are, are pretty, um, standout for me. Yeah. This might be impossible to answer, so I apologize in advance. The most inspirational person you've interviewed? Oof. I mean, you know, sport's really powerful, and um, uh, I've been lucky to interview, I feel like, a lot of inspirational people. Um, One of the first things I got to do with Olympic Channel was I interviewed a refugee swimmer. Uh, she was on the refugee Olympic team in Rio 2016. Her name is Yusra Mardini. And um, she was a Syrian refugee. And she literally uh, was um, escaped from Syria with her family. And actually, the boat that they were on when they were leaving, um, I don't know if it capsized, but it, it definitely involved them being in the water and being rescued. And two years later, she's swimming at the Rio Olympics. And I really didn't, I knew of her story before that, but um, I got to interview her and we did an Instagram live uh, and I got to write a piece on her and, you know, just seeing what she had been through and you know she, she wasn't she didn't make it out of the heats she was disappointed with her time she felt like she should have done better in rio um her story to me was is still pretty damn incredible have you ever been starstruck when doing an interview so many times. Uh, I, I mean, I can't remember if I told you, have I told you this where it was the first year I was doing Indian Wells and um, I'm stood there and I'm nervous and I'm ready. And, and the cameraman's like, okay, it's all taped. He's like, okay, go ahead. And I'm like, hey guys, I'm here with Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer is stood next to me. <laughs> so I, I'm going to guess that I was a little starstruck because I, I wouldn't have said that otherwise. Um, <laughs> I, you know, working, I've gotten the chance to interview Michelle Kwan a few times. She's someone that, you know, a nine time national champion, five time world champ, um, just give her the Olympic gold. Um, yeah, no, there, there's been, there's been plenty of those for sure. <laughs> Is there a story that you did not get the chance to tell that you wish you could have today? No, just in your career, oh. you know, oh, I wanted that matchup or I really wanted to land that interview or that person didn't make the Olympics when I would have been able to tell that story. You know, uh, I was actually working on a piece for Racket Magazine when the pandemic hit um, and it was about hitting partners on the tennis tour. And actually there's a whole collection of hitting partners. They primarily work 
with the the women's tour because they're more common on the on the women's side of things. But um, I'd still really like to tell that story. These people who are, you know, sleeping on floors and getting paid nothing, and you know, getting a food credential, and you know, otherwise hoping that maybe they'll get some tips from the players. Oftentimes, they're not paid by the tournaments. Um, there's some really incredible, powerful people out there. Um, so maybe I will get to tell it at some point. <laughs> we will be on the lookout for it. I close every episode with a segment called the set pieces. These are questions for all of my guests. I'll start off. What are podcasts or newsletters that you use to stay informed or keep learning? Yeah. I mean, I'm a news junkie. Um, I, I start every day with, up first, which is the NPR news uh, podcast. I then go to uh, Start Here, which is the ABC News podcast, and then I always listen to the Daily every day uh, um, with Michael Barbaro. Um, the newsletters are quite similar, like at New York Times, Associated Press. I still get the Daily Beast newsletters. Um, you introduced me actually to the Front Office Sports newsletter, which I, I really like. Um, Mark Lacero introduced me to this newsletter called Morning Brew, which is kind of like tech meets business. I, I pretend to know what they're talking about. I, I don't, um, but it's good for me to look at that. Um, I, I do. I, I look at the skim. I like to look at kind of what they're talking about, especially when you're looking at the female audience. Um, and then I, I am not a big four, big time fan in u.s sports so i get deadspin's newsletter i think it's twice a day and i most of the time i have no idea what they're talking about but it's highly entertaining <laughs> who are your most valuable follows the social posts you do not want to be missing these are people that i that i follow right yep the ones okay. that you want to make sure you see when they've posted something yeah i mean in tennis it, for for me in tennis it's wta insider Ben Rothenberg, John Wertheim. Those are, those are kind of my, you know, I, I check those three accounts to see, you know, what have I missed if I'm not working tennis all the time, which now with the Olympics, I'm not. Um, I follow, I, I got the chance to, as you know, work with Ali Love, who's a Peloton instructor. She's the Nets host, uh, in arena host. And she is the most inspirational, energetic, like, you know, does not let anything knock her down um on her social she lives that and breathes that and so I, I actually have really appreciated kind of learning about her i'm not a peloton writer myself um if you don't follow adam rapon you should he is the funniest like just could not give two shits about presentation or how he looks or you know what something means he just is himself which I think kind of in today's very veneered, um, filtered, glossied social media world, I really appreciate that. What are a couple of books you would recommend? Yeah, I so I'm one of those people that reads like two or three books at once and all of them slowly. Um, so I'm reading, right now I'm reading All the Light We Cannot See, which is Anthony Doerr. It's about um, World War II. And it's, there's a, a young French girl who's um, traveling with her father. And there's a young German boy who's, I, I believe he's eventually going to be a part of Hitler's army. Um, I, I love stuff with a little bit of a historical bend in it. And then I'm also reading How to Survive a Plague by David Franz, which is the story of 
New York City in the 80s and 90s and the AIDS epidemic um, that was very much impactful on the queer community and, and trying to connect to my history and, and the people who have fought to, to help me, to help my generation have the opportunities we have. And then I'm a huge fan of New York Magazine. It um, it is it feels like a book to me, and I um, it keeps me sort of up to date on New York as I as I usually am traveling the world. <laughs> what would you consider your cheat code or your best life hack? <laughs> um, red wine. <laughs> no, I, I think you and I have talked about this before. I'm a, a big fan of intermittent fasting. So I eat eight hours a day. Um, I have never had more energy in my life. Um, I feel like I'm sick less. I'm more focused. Uh, so I eat every day about one, two o'clock depending. And then I can have a nice dinner around eight or nine. And then I, I have coffee with, I cheat with a little bit of milk in the mornings. Um, and then for all the traveling that I know that you and I used to do, um, I'm a big, big fan of melatonin. Just, just a little bit, maybe sometimes if, if you really need it, you take the, the full five milligrams, but it's natural. It's, it's part of your body. If you can't sleep, if you have trouble falling asleep, a little melatonin, I, I find it, it'll knock me out no matter what. And I've been taking it for years. What's your favorite sports memory as a kid? Yeah, we've, we've talked a little bit about kind of this in different ways. I was thinking about 92 and Albertville. I, I remember sort of pointedly watching those Olympics. Um, I remember, you know, watching the last dance really brought a lot of, we watched a lot of NBA basketball in my house. Um, we watched a lot of NCAA basketball. Uh, I would say though, you know, for me, when I was a kid, it was my sister playing basketball, running track, and it was my brothers playing soccer. I, I was so invested in, you know, Montana high school sports. Those were my Super Bowls. <laughs> Do you keep your credentials? And if so, where is that collection? <laughs> my favorite question of, of the pod, Pete. <laughs> um, I mean, you can see my my apartment in New York right now. We're on Zoom, but I, I am a New Yorker. We don't have a lot of space. Um, so I've, I, I kind of whittle things down. So I, I will keep some credentials. Um, I have my two from 2020, the Australian Open and the US Open. Usually I have 20 credentials from the year that I'll, I'll hang it on my, my closet door right there. I'll hang it until about this time of year and then I'll go through and I'll kind of look at each one and reflect on the experiences and and then I, I probably will pitch a few um but I, I was kind of sorting through some stuff last weekend and found like a whole stack from 2014 from Sochi I always I obviously keep all my Olympics ones um yeah so it's a little bit of a push-pull I, I can't tell if I'm gonna be like shit I should have like kept all of them so I can build sort of this beautiful montage when I'm done and retired. But right now as a New Yorker, it feels good to hang on to like the ones that I want and need and I can say goodbye to the rest of them. And I have to ask, because we're talking Olympics, pin trading is its own economy at Olympic games. <laughs> do you get involved with that? I do, but I, yeah, I never feel like I come with like, a, a, I, you know, for Team USA and Rio and NBC, it was like, 
you know, you've got to bring your own pins or we don't have enough pins. Or, and so I always end up with a few of the people, the, the generous idiots who will give you a pin without getting one back. <laughs> um, but yeah, I have a few, I'd have to look at my, um, in Pyeongchang, I ended up with a few that I was, that I was really happy with and I'll, I would stick them on the lanyard. Um, but I, I know Serena is huge into her pin trading. So I think I'm an amateur compared to SW. <laughs> there's a lot that you're not an amateur in and I appreciate you taking the time to walk us through what it's been like in your career to go from walking in and asking for an internship to now being on the Olympic channel and a lot of the stops in between. So Nick, thank you so much for your friendship over the years, but also for taking the time today to be on credentials only. Yeah, Pete, listen, I, I really appreciate it. And it's been fun to look back at all of that, especially in the year that we've all had. I wish you well, and I hope everyone out there uh, stays safe and stays healthy. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Nick. Keep an eye out for his work with the U.S. and World Skating Championships taking place in the coming months with the Australian Open sandwiched between those two events. Thank you for listening to this episode of Credentials Only, and thanks to Nick for sharing so much of his story with us. Don't forget to show us some love with a rating and review wherever you are listening and head over to credentialsonly.com not only for show notes, but to drop us your email so we can slide into your inbox when we have a new episode to share. Mike Miche at his Credentials Only, which is a Holter Media production.